0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Some people think the English language is devolving. LOL pops up in text. The word like is used all the time and literally is used to mean figuratively. But Columbia linguistics professor John McWhorter says the changing nature of the English language isn't surprising.
1: A word is always gradually changing in meaning. A word is not just a thing sitting in a dictionary. The dictionary is a Polaroid snapshot. It's artificial. A word is something going on.
0: In today's show, he dives into how language shifts and why we shouldn't be frustrated with its evolution. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. John McWhorter's book, Words on the Move, is about how language is always changing. The most controversial chapter focuses on Shakespeare, McWhorter suggests Shakespeare's works, like The Tempest, should be redone in modern English.
1: The reason that Shakespeare is so difficult is not because we don't know the words. It's because so many of the words' meanings have changed in ways that keep us from being able to get at what the characters meant.
0: We're taught language is static, so when words change their meaning, it can rub us the wrong way. In this conversation with author and doyen of linguistics, Deborah Tannen, they talk about language as a living thing and how social media is increasing the pace of language change. McWhorter also goes over dialects and why we judge the way people speak. Here's Deborah Tannen.
2: Tell us about the title, Words on the Move. Um, it's about how language changes mm-hmm. and why people are so frustrated by it changing and shouldn't mm-hmm. be. But what are some of the key ways that language change is changing that frustrates people?
1: Um, well, I think it should be clear that while in another guise I talk about language change in society for urgent reasons involving politics and identity. Words on the Move is not about that. Words on the Move is just a jolly language geeks book about how language changes in ways that are even more difficult to perceive than the ones that involve politics and controversy, et cetera. And what I wanted to get at in Words on the Move, to tell you the truth, Deborah, you will understand this, I wanted to write a book about what we call historical linguistics or diachronic change for the general public that didn't scare the general public off. And so no, you can't call it it's that. it's If you, you ever
2: know. wondered what's linguistics, you'll see and you'll That's, see why people like us fall in love with it because it's right. so fascinating. And he can show you how, yeah. Yeah, and
1: so it's language change. And so I mean things along the lines of you're reading Melville, you're reading Moby Dick, because of course all of us do that all the time. And there are word meanings that Melville indulges in that are subtly different from ours. And so he'll talk about something being pitiful. And you think to yourself that whatever he's writing about sounds kind of grand. By pitiful, he meant feeling pity for something or there'll be a word like fantastic used in Melville or Henry James. And you can tell that the idea that we have of fantastic, as in something being marvelous or great, doesn't quite work. And really, what fantastic often meant then was somebody who was given to fantasies, somebody who had a rich imagination. And so just things from 100 or 125 years ago show that languages words are always changing in meaning and that that's the norm. And so one aspect of language change I wanted to get at was what we might call semantic change, but nobody would read a book called that. (laughs) And so the idea is that a word is always gradually changing in meaning. A word is not just a thing sitting in a dictionary. The dictionary is a Polaroid snapshot. It's artificial. A word is something going on. And so very often, you and I will hear somebody saying, why are people using this word differently? It's supposed to mean that, but people are using it to mean this. And you and I always think, well, all words are moving like that. Our lives are too short to understand that that's what language is. It's like clouds. That's what the point was. Um, So
2: what? Having been out there talking about the book for a while, uh, what have people zeroed in on and what do you think is most important that they should have zeroed in on?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You write a book and as the years go by, maybe one little factoid sticks from that book. Words on the Move is going to be remembered as the book where I say that Shakespeare (laughs) needs to be done in modern translation. And I, you know, I stick by it because (laughs) I say that you go see Shakespeare and I don't care if the people are British. I don't care (laughs) if the actors are good. You sit there and unless you read it the week before, it's tough. Now, some of them are easier than others. Twelfth Night is not as hard as King Lear. But if you go to King Lear, unless you've read it and probably more than once, it's hard. You know, after the grandeur of the performances and whatever the set looks like, you don't know what's going on. I'll openly admit it. I have never happened to read The Tempest. I'm getting too old to say that in public, but I've never gotten to it. I have seen The Tempest three times, two of the productions were excellent. I'll openly admit I had no blessed idea what was going on. And people next to me have said, oh, it was just so wonderful, it was fantastic. And I was about 25 when I realized, after I saw the first one of these, they said, oh, it was wonderful, oh, I understood every word. And I thought, you're lying, you didn't, simple as that and it got me thinking about how words meanings change. Because the reason that Shakespeare is so difficult is not because we don't know the words, it's because so many of the words meanings have changed in ways that keep us from being able to get at what the characters meant. And so to get across semantic change in the book. I can't just give a list of you know, words, meanings, changes. That would only work for us. I had to say, why does this matter in your life? And so I tried to use Shakespeare. And I said, the reason that you don't really like Shakespeare, unless you have read it before, is because what the words meant to him, and it's really about one in 10 of the words, is not what they mean to us anymore. And that makes it like a you know, radio station that's not quite tuned in. So I give some passages from Macbeth which is another one. Luckily, I've read Macbeth, but before I had read it, I saw a production with Patrick Stewart. There are all these effects and the witches are leaning backwards and they're very (laughs) sexy and everybody's talking about how great it was. The only people who really understood what was going on were these Russians behind me because they had it in Russian with them. And I thought, you know, this, this isn't right. And it's because of these sorts of things. There is a guy named Conrad Spoke who, among other people, also Kent Richmond, is doing Shakespeare, not in translation, leaving as much of it intact as possible, but changing those words where there's no possible way for you to know what they mean. Anybody in Shakespeare who says generous means noble. They don't mean magnanimous. Somebody uses it that way, you don't know, you can't check, you're not reading. Four lines later, somebody else does something you know, like that again. That's why you're so tired after 15 minutes. So I show in the book that with an adjustment of Macbeth, suddenly it's Tennessee Williams or Tony Kushner, instead of this thing that you go to you know, with tears rolling down your cheeks, and if you liked it, it was because of what it looked like and not because you understood the plot. So the... Um, the semantics chapter involves Shakespeare. And that's what either makes people angry or makes people think that I'm brave. And so <laughs> that's, that's what probably will most come out of that book.
2: I was going to ask you about that. Um, why do you think people get so freaked out?
1: We don't like change. I mean, with Shakespeare, it's a class issue. It's kind of like you know, learning French we pride ourselves on having made our way through a couple of them. And we don't like somebody saying you don't really understand it. Or we don't like the idea of saying that other people shouldn't do the work. It's a touchy issue. But in terms of language change in general, we don't want change. You know, I don't like it. I want everything to stay just the way it was myself. And it's it's disconcerting also because we're trained to think that language is something static. Dictionaries are big. They, they smell good, you're going through it, and you've mastered the meanings of some of these words, especially the ones that nobody knows. And then it starts moving along. You don't like it. And you also tend to feel like young people are doing something wrong. So if they're chewing gum and smoking weed and using a word in a certain way, there must be something wrong with it. We're the ones in polyester <laughs> who are doing it right. And so that's another <laughs> issue. But we've got to get past it. And not because um, we need to let it all hang out. It's not that. That's not my point. The point is that no language has ever not changed. And so the way we've gotten to what I'm speaking from Beowulf is through what people always thought were mistakes. And so to say that what's happening now is somehow wrong. Many people seem to think that once you get to about Jane Austen the language is supposed to stop changing. Why? What what happened then? It just keeps changing. And if you can get used to it, you like it. You're watching the show. You know, what is that word going to mean? How is the word ass becoming a suffix, you know, which has happened over the 20th century and really took off in the 90s. That's fun. Give examples. And the, for example, you know, to talk about Um, Well, actually, big ass, that goes back to the early 20th century, but I remember somebody was trying to teach me to cook spaghetti, I forget why. It was 1989, and she said, well, you have to start with a big ass pot, and I'm sure people have been saying it before, but I thought, that's an interesting usage, and that has really taken off since, you know, a a lame ass breath, a long ass opera. How in the world did buttocks become a suffix? And yet, they did. And what it means is that something is counterintuitive. And so, for example, if you said, like, where, where are we? Um, we're in Colorado. And so I'll bet, I've been traveling a lot lately, and it's the air. But you know, squirrels can be different colors. I was in Finland once, and the squirrels were black. And they didn't care. But to me, a squirrel is supposed to be gray. Imagine if you had been in Helsinki for six years, and then you come back to Philadelphia or Aspen and the squirrels are gray. You might say, hey, look, it's a gray-ass squirrel. And you don't mean that it has gray buttocks. What you mean is that it's gray against expectation. That's what buttocks have come to mean. Shakespeare would have had no idea. That's fun. And then a certain kind of person sits and says, I don't like all this profanity. No, 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 no. There's something beautiful happening. And that's what I was trying to get at in Words on the Move, enjoy it.
2: Isn't it also uh, more emphatic? So a big ass pot, it's not like you didn't think the pot was gonna be big, but it's very big, very big. Yeah, you yeah. need
1: not just a little sauce pot. Yeah. Yeah. Pot, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, re- it's a very articulate thing. You can listen to vulgar people, mm-hmm. and you can think, boy, they use the language well. I yeah. enjoy that.
2: <laughs> um, so let me just kind of my last question along along this line. Um, yeah, we don't want things to change. Uh, we I think don't. We think the latest styles are really obnoxious. you know, why do people dress like that? We think the latest hairstyles are crazy. you know, why do people shave half their head and the that's point? supposed to look good, you know <laughs> But there's something about language that it people don't just say oh, you know it's changed I like the change they think it's wrong mm-hmm. and they get angry about it mm-hmm. um, like someone is the person here who asked from the audience why do people uh, a, wait, a waiter in a restaurant had said oh, yeah yeah um, I'll grab bad. you will yeah. grab you some uh, menus don't grab them just get them <laughs> and why say oh that's awesome it's that awesome. It's just okay.
1: <laughs> she's probably here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Is that person here? Um, and I was thinking the main reason it's so annoying, she's trying to give it a little, her, her technical argument was the dictionary, like the dictionary says awesome means this. That's not how she's using it. But we, we say it's great. We don't really mean great. Some years ago the word was swell. Everything's swell. Well, it's not swelling. So, but it's that, that level of um, self-righteousness mm-hmm. and um, actual anger that people, so why do we react more to language than to other things that we see changing?
1: It's the last permissible classism, I think. And so we are trained as enlightened people not to openly, look down on people for being of a different class. And we Americans don't talk about class as explicitly as, for example, the British do. And so there's no such thing as taking your cane and wrapping a ruffian on the shoulder or something like that. And, you know, thank the Lord for that. But I think that there is an element in all of us that kind of likes lording it over other people for reasons like that. There's always the issue of pecking order. You see it in small children. You learn to suppress it as you get older. But one way that you can do that openly is to look down on people for the way they speak and to look down on people for supposedly not using the language in the right way because they're not thinking about it hard enough. This is completely understandable. It is completely natural. It's not evil. It would almost be strange if that weren't the case, especially given that language is taught, as not how language actually is, not the descriptivism that we like, but grammar is taught as roughly 12 things that you're not supposed to do, that everybody nevertheless does when they relax, that people two or three hundred years ago made up that we shouldn't do because they didn't have enough to do and didn't know anything about language, and we're just stuck with it, and so the whole Billy and I business is absurd, or, you know, I have less books than you fewer books that's just something somebody made up you know it's it's just it's you have to know those things in order to you know walk around in society i will make sure my children know i'm glad somebody told me but those things are really just made up yeah. and people, that's what we think grammar is
2: but people who argue it will say it's logical mhm and often yeah. it isn't
1: <laughs> for example you know i don't see nothing well, it's illogical because really it means that you don't see nothing, which means that you see something. Who ever came up with that? That's something somebody worked out because they thought language is supposed to be like math. Most languages have double negatives. In language, negation just reinforces itself. It has nothing to do with clarity at all. Or Billy and me went to the store. No, say Billy and I went to the store because it's clearer. Well, what would Billy and me mean otherwise? <laughs> it's not clear. It's just idle torture. That's all it is. It's a treasure.
2: That's why we're linguists and not English teachers. Yep.
1: None of that. All Uh. due respect to English
0: teachers. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more from today's featured speaker, John McWhorter, log on to our website aspenideas.org. There, you'll find on-stage talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Watch a video of John McWhorter giving a lecture about modern American English, or hear him speak on a panel of language experts about how words affect our democracy and us. Find these conversations at aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Deborah Tannen.
2: So much of what you're doing, uh, which, again, I I so admire, and and kind of bringing linguistics to the the general public, is kind of uh, overcoming the negative reactions that people have to things that are just the way language works. Uh, And one pattern like that is people accusing other people of being fake, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: manipulative. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the fact that Obama was often criticized for sometimes... Um, using features of black English. Mm-hmm. And he was accused of being manipulative, doing it on purpose and being fake. Mm-hmm. And you end up saying it's a lot like using LOL in a yeah. text. Oh,
1: yeah, That's right. Yeah, that, see, nobody <laughs> ever talked about that part of the book. It's all about <laughs> M- Macbeth. Um, yeah, that is an important point. It's one of those things where during you know, Obama's ascendancy, many people, and some of them were black, most of them were white, but some of them were black, genuinely thought, and when this many intelligent people think it, your response can't be that they're crazy or that they're evil. You have to go into people's heads and think, why do they think that? They thought that when Obama used elements of black English when speaking to black audiences, that he was being fake because he can speak standard English. And I just thought, really? And the first person I heard say that, I kind of thought, well, you just don't like him. And she didn't. But then as I heard more and more people say it, including I was mauled on one MSNBC show by a very black woman who really, really took me to task for letting Obama get by with using bad English. Strange. But she is a very intelligent person. So I thought, what is it that people are missing about this? And it's that we live in such a a bland linguistic environment in America. I would say vanilla, but then it's going to make it sound like I'm talking about whiteness, and I'm not. (laughs) But we're a new country. English was brought here 10 minutes ago, and so it hasn't had a chance to develop into really different things. In Great Britain, there are Englishes that might as well be Swedish. They're so, so different. Here... Everybody more or less speaks the same thing. Black English is rather different, but not as different as a lot of British dialects. To really not be able to understand someone, you have to have, say, Gullah Creole, and that's only one thing, and it's going extinct, or Hawaiian Pigeon, which is not a pigeon, it's a Creole, but most of us aren't in Hawaii. And so we kind of think English is one thing. So if Obama can speak two things. There's a tendency to think that the black English is just letting mainstream English go. And then you get into that people think that black English is just a series of slang and mistakes. So you and I hear him, and we think he's got this bi-dialectal repertoire. But a lot of people hear it, and they think that he's letting his real English go. And so in a different book, in this one, what I said was that In using this informal but coherent kind of language, what Obama was doing was sounding a note of warmness to a black audience in the same way as LOL warms up your texts. And I just wish people could hear it that way, because it struck me. And it wasn't wrong, I see how these people are hearing it, but Obama is using black speech for the first time as a president, and there's some people sitting there watching him and thinking how dare he do it. So I thought I, I work I have to work against that. I wonder if it'll have any effect. But that was the point of that passage.
2: Yeah, uh, I think there's a tendency for people to look at the effect of something and say, oh, you did that manipulatively to have that effect, whereas
1: yeah, it, it might
2: just be an—it is often just an instinct to c- connect to people.
1: I doubt Obama thought yeah. about it. Yeah, another thing. I'm yeah. sure he was as surprised as we were to hear himself, you know, interpreted that way. Yeah.
2: So yeah. May, maybe it's related to the idea that there's one right way to spe- speak. That we should each have one way to speak. That's our dialect, our language. Whereas in fact, we have many hmm. different ways we speak to different people.
1: And you know. What's wrong with it? I mean, I think some people say, well, we all have to have this one way so we can understand each other. And within certain bounds, yeah. But suppose people in Maine spoke the way rural people in Maine spoke until about 50 years ago and people in the south spoke really deep, full-blown white southern, and then there would be black English and its varieties, and everybody's speaking really different kinds of English. Would there really be such a comprehension problem? No, not really. It's that we have this idea that one dialect is somehow better, and that is just pounded into us, all of us. I think you and I both feel it to a certain extent, but there's just no... There's no scientific basis for it. And so I think it's part of our jobs. You, I should say, were one of my inspirations. When I came into linguistics, You know, one knew that Deborah Tannen was the public linguist. And I thought, that's the way it should be. We shouldn't only write these papers that even our colleagues don't read and that get us promotions. <laughs> I thought we should share some of this stuff. And here we are. So I'm so happy that we're doing this. But the idea is supposed to be that, and I just lost my thread. Um, What was I talking about? Um, Give me a keyword. That there isn't just one
2: form of language, but but we we all have
1: multiple. We we have these multiple ways of speaking, and it's really, it's perfectly okay. But of course, a part of us thinks that there's only one way, because that's how people talk on TV. And that teacher told us that that's the way that we were supposed to do it. And of course, there's a delicate issue here. Because, of course, we're often asked, well, if all ways of speaking are okay, then how come you're not using any of them when you're speaking in public? And that's because there will always be convention. You have to wear deodorant. People who don't wear clothes aren't taken very seriously in public. <laughs> they should be, but they're they're never going to be. And so there are certain things
2: they're taken, but not <laughs> <laughs> right. <it's, laughs>
1: right. You have to learn certain things. You can't say Billy and I went to the store in public because well, just because. And you know, life is difficult. So all people have to learn these things. But we have to learn not to look at other ways of speaking as wrong. They should just be alternate. And if you hear language that way, then really you have. This is, I think, the last line of the book. I'm going to go further back. The last few lines of it are there are people who prefer their flowers pressed dry in books. There are people I hear who prefer the inflatable doll or the corpse. However, (laughs) there are those of us who prefer the language as it is a living thing passing along like a parade if you see it that way, not only are you a better scientist, but you have a lot more fun. Those are the last lines of the book. And that's what I think.
2: And and you can see why my friend Carl said, I love that book. (laughs) Uh, What, and we'll maybe open for questions in about five minutes, but what is a contronym? Oh, And why are they interesting? (laughs)
1: So, the rabbit um, moves fast, okay. The chair was stuck fast to the floor. Who cares? (laughs) I seeded the watermelon. I took the seeds out. Those of you who are uh, young don't remember that it used to be that if you ate grapes, they had seeds. If you ate a watermelon, you had to deal with the seeds. Today is better. So <laughs> seeding the watermelon, you pull out the seeds. I am seeding my land, my boy. Well, you're not pulling the seeds out. You're putting them in. Okay? Did you ever think about it? Do you want to think about it now? No. And it has occasioned no problems. So I, <laughs> I literally said, thank you very much. I was literally dying of thirst. Oh, no, no, no. Because literally is both meaning literally and figuratively. Well, it's like a house divided against itself. So how can it mean the two things that are opposite? How? Well, just like fast and seed and 75 other words like that that we use all the time there's nothing wrong with little literally and more to the point it's been used that way since people wore breeches and pomades and died young you can find examples of that back in the 1700s so it's not new it's not something that happened around the time of bill and ted's adventure it's ancient it's called a contronym i'm glad you asked that
2: yeah i love that and and again your book is full of that things that
1: that people We all see asking. all the
2: time, and we don't you know, look closely at. Literally. So. <laughs> as in, I'm, I'm literally gonna open into questions, but I'm actually not. How dare you? <laughs> right. Um, you started out by saying that in a way, it's historical linguistics, and again, you're so good at that. Um, so could you just talk about some of the wonderful evolutions of words that you mentioned? So for example, how did Mary start out meaning short? Mm-hmm. How did meat start out meaning simply food? Mm-hmm. Bread started out meaning crumbs of any kind of food. Mm-hmm. Even fruit, um, or something. Yeah. yeah. How did and, and then a whole other class of things? Uh, why do we say used to? What does that have to do with use?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So you don't think about those. these
1: things. You know, I used to see her every day. Used. We just say it. Think about it though. <laughs> It's like having a tongue. Your like you have a tongue in your mouth, and then you think about this, ew, and you can't get rid of it. (laughs) Think about used to used what? And there are old elocution guides where they say you should pronounce it used, which shows that this is an this is an evolution. She used to see him. Use what? And yet you see this happening gradually. You can see it in the Oxford English Dictionary. And so it started out as this is something that he is used to, as in it's something that he does on a regular basis. It was an idiom. And now we just say used to. And really it shouldn't even be spelled U-S-E-D. Used to. That's all it is. Or Mary is a gorgeous, gorgeous example. I came across that one by accident. I was looking for kind of a dramatic <clears throat> example other than the one that you see in all the books, which is always how um, the word blessed turned into silly. And I was tired of writing about that. So I thought <laughs> I need another one. And merry is just is delightful. It goes back to a word which was used on the steps of Ukraine by people who had gold and wheels and matrilineality. And they used the word merry. It was <sighs> That's what it was. And it meant short. Just meant short. Now, If something is short, often that's good, because you weren't enjoying it. And so if something's short, it might make you happy. And so gradually, (laughs) this word that meant short came to mean merry. Now, also, here's your arm. This part is longer than this part. In some languages that mreg came to refer to this it was your shorty part now change the sounds of mreg and you get breg, brack brac, brachial brachial brachiation like a monkey or something like that brachiation bracier bra bra comes from that word too because it's worn somewhere around here and things kind of changed around mreg breg brech brets brets bret, pretz pretz pretzel because it looks like crossed arms. And so, bra, pretzel and merry all go back to this one word that just referred to a short person in Ukraine 8000 years ago. That is our language. That is what we're speaking. That makes me so happy. And That was a tour de force. I love
2: it. So we are supposed to open to questions at 10 2 and so there's lots of questions. Do we have microphones? So hello, I'm Alex. Twice I've seen you two. Uh, enjoyed it. Look, how do you see language changing the English language as we become more aware of a lot of other languages? You know, I'm always fascinated, fiesta. You all know what fiesta is. I'm in grad, I was in graduate school, and I would just, whenever they asked me a question, I needed a short answer, yes, si. Sí. I would just go si, sí, and gracias. And people were like delighted with that. Um, how are we gonna change, and how do you
0: see language changing and allowing the authentication of what we bring as other
2: language speakers to America?
1: Alejandro, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't give you the answer that I wish that I could, which is that English is going to be more open to other languages. I wish, because to be honest, with words on the move, I wrote it about English because I've gradually learned from the industry that most people who read about language would would, big surprise, rather read about their native language instead of me dipping around in Finnish and Arabic and stuff, which I did in a lot of my earlier books. And so I thought, I have to actually write one that's only about English. And I'm glad I did. It does seem to speak to people more directly. I love other languages. When I became a linguist, the last thing I wanted to write about was this. I didn't want to write about Black English. I didn't want to write about Modern English. Middle English bored me to tears. It was the other languages. And so yes, I wish I could say that we're going to be taking them in. Words a little, yeah, sushi, whatever. But frankly, English is taking over the world. And no, not Mandarin, Chinese, there are some obstacles there. It's going to be the, the Chinese are going to run the world. they're going to run it in, in English. And I think that small languages are dying away at an alarming speed. Spanish and Korean and Finnish will be fine, but the ones you've never heard of mostly are just going to be extinct in about 100 years. And so, no, not in any real sense. Spanglish is interesting, and I think that many people will continue speaking Spanglish, but I don't know if it's going to persist over the generations. I don't think it's going to be standardized, partly because people hate on Spanglish the way they hate on English. You know, it's just you're speaking the wrong thing. So I, I can't be cuddly about that. And I wish I could, because I'm more interested in other languages than the one that I grew up with. You know, Merry, pretzel, all that's mundane. I want to think about Spanish. But I'm not sure that we're going to have the merry mixture that you're talking about. A lot of xenophobia, too, just a little. And so that's, no, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. (laughs) Sir? When I hear people say, uh, most importantly, including in the mainstream medium, Am I supposed to enjoy that? <laughs> <laughs> Remind me of what saying most important. There's no verb anywhere near what they're saying to, for the adverb to modify. Most so am in- I supposed to enjoy that?
2: Is is it the use of most important? Oh, importantly. Than, rather than importantly. Mm-hmm.
1: So yes. you no. don't want it to be an adverb. It should be most important. He says. It it should be most important, shouldn't it? You mean if somebody starts a sentence. Most importantly, and then they say something. Certainly, he'll be here tomorrow. Seriously, I don't enjoy the yellow raisin. Hopefully, the wire will come back or something like that. Most importantly, what was done didn't hurt the farmers. It's a sentential adverb. And so there's a natural tendency to want to give it a little lead. Right? So no, it, it doesn't hurt me. Okay.
2: Is this, does, this fall, does this fall in the category of it irks you because it doesn't literally parse? And I guess the whole message of modern linguistics is if people use it that way, meaning comes from use, right?
1: I guess I would say Billy. Most important, she never told him. No, I want the lead. (laughs) Ma'am.
3: Um, My name's Jenny. I have two teenage boys, and they're lovely, actually, despite all the stereotypes. They might have been terrible, but they're good. Um, But I'm fascinated by two things about our conversations around language. One is the pace of change regarding the slang that they use. So words that they were trying to explain to me at the beginning of the year, they will now, like, update me and say, Mom, don't ever use that word that way that's no longer that will date you like that word is three months old like and then the second piece of it is there there's an insider outsider element to the language they use so they'll preface all of their insider information by saying don't ever use these words they are like our words but they know I'm kind of fascinated by like Wait, that word that we used to think meant something terrible means like the best possible thing. It's often those opposite things. But Mm -hmm. I'm just curious something about both the identity piece that, that seems to come with this insider language, and then do you see the pace of the change that is a natural feature of language increasing maybe, or is that just teenagerness?
1: Deborah, let me try something, although I know this isn't what we're supposed to do. But since (laughs) I've always taken a cue from you, when you get the question about whether... Thank you for the question. When you get the question, though, about whether slang is changing more quickly these days, what do you say? I have about three answers I give to that, depending on the context. But what do you say?
2: Well, I have two parts of it. One is the younger people are always at the forefront of change. So it may be changing faster for them than it is going to be for the... um, General. brought broader society. Some of those words will be picked up by the broader society, some won't. But I think it is changing faster because of all the media and the... What's your answer?
1: Um, I used to say that it wasn't changing faster, but the way social media has become I think it is and I'm it not sure true. whether there's an official measure yet I'm sure there'll there'll be one but what that means is that the slang that they were using in the early 60s in a musical like Bye Bye Birdie apparently theirs didn't turn over as fast as people's do today and I wasn't quite around for that, but it seems to about square with it, it although, and you would say that it's, it's, it's think so. faster. Now, the truth is we do miss how much slang there was in the past because people were less likely to write it down. And so, for example, Bugs Bunny says, what's up, doc? That was what teenagers in Texas were saying to each other in the 20s and 30s, and Tex Avery picked it up and gave it to the rabbit. So that was <laughs> slang, and that surely wasn't the only thing that those mostly now dead people were saying to each other when they were teenagers in Texas. So we miss a lot of it because no one wrote it down. But does it turn over faster? Probably. You know, we're trained to say no, but that training was, for me, it was in the 90s. Things have changed. Yeah.
3: So you've been talking about actual words. I'm curious about the fillers that we use mm-hmm. and the fact that. Chapter one. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to read your book. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that the word like. <laughs> I knew that was coming.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. It's on. Yeah.
3: Is so much a part of the vocabulary of particularly younger people? And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Like is just a gorgeous thing. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I mean, there is, um, there's somebody who's being called the like lady. Her name is Alexandra Darcy, and she has written actually a whole book on like, where she manages to really deal with a balance between being scholarly and being accessible. The book is almost enjoyable to read. I mean, you could actually get through it. And she has really done a job on like and showed how it arose and among whom and what the various grammatical shadings of it are. And it's really a very subtle piece of work. It takes dissertations to analyze exactly what somebody (laughs) means by it. And you know, there are two things about it though that are a little quirky. One is that frankly, I'm not a prescriptivist, but in terms of how we hear the word like, I do tell my students, don't use like as much as you do when you're trying to be taken seriously speaking in public. That's just a reality. You can't use it every five words, even if it is grammatically complex. It sounds tentative. It, as often as not isn't, but it sounds that way. So you have to knock it off. And two, some endeavor. this is something that I've never shared until right now, and I'm not sure what to do with it with like, because what I really care about is other languages. I shouldn't keep saying this about a book that's English. I always want to say, well, there's something like that in just about any language you can find, and you know, there isn't, I mean, except for European languages where they are modeling some of their words after English is like. If you really go into you know, languages spoken in the rainforest or you know, Mongolian or something that you've never heard of, no, I've never seen anything like this particular like, which also mysteriously took root across the Anglophone world all at the same time for reasons nobody understands. And so does it say something about the modern American consciousness? I'm trained to say no. But I'm beginning to think that it might. And so why is it that people use it so much? And part of it is a kind of politeness. If you're always saying like, it's because you don't want to pound your opinions in too hard.
2: Which is why girls tend to do it more than boys. Women more than men. I'm going to let you
1: say that. But yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I'm really, gl- I love studies of it. But yeah, it, it really does hit us in our amygdala in, in some ways, and, and I, there are I reasons. have to
2: say, I remember a colleague of mine saying, his daughter was a native speaker of like English. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes.
2: But then a couple of years later he said, she didn't do it anymore. It, it tends to be, every, we all do it somewhat, but There's mostly it's aspect. young, yeah, teenage girls.
1: You have such a uh, refreshingly liberal view of language I'm kind of shocked, kind of, uh, I'm shocked that
3: um, <laughs> that you are accepting of the new uh, use of literally,
1: mm-hmm. um, and I, I want to introduce the idea of um, jargon. What do you think about jargon? It seems like with Silicon Valley's ascendance, that jargon has crept into our language, and you know words like architecting is a verb, or people out there are always convening instead of meeting and um, iterating, and should I just relax? Really? It drives me crazy. That's such a good example. You listen to these new uses, you know, the nouns and the verbs and the, v- the words are jumping the fence, and you think, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I've heard people talk about incenting, you know, for incentive, and I openly admit it's kind of... But that is how English has developed. If you don't like that, then you don't like copy, which started out as a noun. There were people who wouldn't have liked you to say that you copied anything. You don't like view, you don't like sleep, and you can imagine how long I could go. That is the way English works, and it's still happening. And so you go into some book about the history of English and you learn about how all of these nouns became verbs and sometimes the other way around. And you think, yes, this wonderful language marches along changing. <laughs> and then for some reason, around Jane Austen, and I'm not mocking you, but around Jane Austen, then no more. No incenting. It just doesn't make sense. And so, yes. And so, no, I'm not, I mean... I'm not being liberal in this way. The reason that a person feels this way about something like literally is because no language has ever not changed that way. And so everybody else, for understandable reasons, is thinking English. We're thinking every language in the world and the way you can see any language changing over time, which makes it illogical to resist what's going on in this one. I think if I only knew about English and the way it was moving along, my natural temperament, You know, where I'm sometimes these are new clothes, but sometimes wearing clothes from twenty years ago because you know they're not dirty. I don't like change at all. I would feel that way. But language is like clouds. If the clouds are in the same position now as they were when we came in, something's wrong. They're supposed to move. I mean if the clouds just sit there, then we're we're about to die. You expect (laughs) them to move. Language is just like the clouds. And that's actually what words on the move is trying to to impart. You do it, because I don't know how.
3: (laughs) Hi. My question is, do you believe we have a responsibility to complicate the relationship between the spoken word and the written word? I was thinking about my role as a father, Uh and I think I have a pretty wide capacity for um, tolerating my kids, you know, various (laughs) vernaculars, because I know that they will grow up with the ability to code switch. The thought of them writing as they speak (laughs) terrifies me because I understand what it takes to get credentials in our society. So the question is, should we be complicating that relationship when we think about how we teach writing?
1: Don't worry, it's okay. We (laughs) underestimate children's ability to be bi or multi-dialectal and to understand context. They won't write the way they talk in that way. There is a whole literature that expects, if I may, black children to make black English mistakes in their standard English writing, vanishingly rare. They understand there's something for the page. Now, they might have any number of other problems, but what their problem is on the page is not that they don't know the difference between ain't and isn't. If they're having a problem, it's because they're having a problem with just writing in general. And so, no, I wouldn't worry, and I'll give you a little something. (laughs) Their bi-dialectalism is a good thing, and one thing I would not want to wish on any black child, because of my own experience, is to, for random particularities, not to be bi-dialectal. I'm not. It's the scourge of my existence. It is absolutely necessary to be able to strike that warm chord. If they can do it already, good. Because if they didn't do it, it would be harder to be a person. I'm sorry if that's a little too personal, but they're lucky.
3: I'm really interested in the interplay between language and power and recognizing that we're at Aspen right now and that there is this sense of when it's appropriate to code switch, when you expect people to speak in standard ways. You'll notice I'm here with blue hair because I think about this idea that I am a woman in a position of power and I wanna let those who come behind me know that they don't need to sacrifice personal identity in order to hold power. What is the message to the Aspen crowd around inclusion in language?
1: We really do need to learn to hear the way all people talk as coherent and nuance. So the message certainly shouldn't be in order to empower people we must make sure that they're using what's often called the gatekeepers code. As long as they can use the standard and then something else then they're doing the right thing. And if anything vernacular language in our very vernacular and in many ways browned culture can be power. To get something across often to sound like Mitt Romney or me, is a disadvantage, really. That's changed. Part of the reason he's not president is because of the way he doesn't talk. Part of the reason Obama became president, just part, is because he can strike a note. Donald Trump sounds authentic. That's a sort of thing that would not have gotten him the presidency even 40, even 30 years ago. And so there is that as well. I did a book about Black English, actually. It was called Talking Back, Talking Black. That was my most recent book, and actually, got more attention than words on the move, I guess because the race part was considered interesting in a way that English itself apparently isn't. And in that book, I argue that we've got to get over the idea of black English as some kind of lapse and understand that it's one of our national treasures. So the, the message would be that. Of course, everybody has to control the standard. But really, to be able to be somewhat vernacular within reason today is also powerful. I think.
2: Is there maybe a kind of irony? Because the message, again, of everything you've been saying today and linguists tend to say is let's look at language as it is, as people use it. And you can't say this is wrong. If everybody's using it, well, that's we'll right them. for them yeah. in that situation with the people they talk to. But at the same time, we are judged by our language. And if you want to be seen as the kind of person who's going to be taken seriously and get ahead then you have to yeah
1: to an extent but it's good to have two things or three things probably most people in the world do if you're talking to anybody who's an Arab they speak two things they'll often tell you that they aren't but they are if you're Moroccan you speak two languages you speak Latin and Italian then if you're talking to them they speak English And if they're Moroccan they also speak French that's amazing most people have a wider repertoire than we do. So we should embrace anything that can widen it beyond just the boring standard.
2: I'm afraid the time is up. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: John McWhorter teaches linguistics, Western civilization, and music history at Columbia University. He's the author of multiple books on linguistics and race. Deborah Tannen is a linguistics professor at Georgetown. Her most recent book is You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. Their conversation was held June 25th at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.